Hey there, podcast listener. Chris Roseborough here right at the front of the podcast. Just want to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. You know that, right? Yeah, yeah, it, it is. If you don't already support us financially, we truly can use your help. So get on your computer. Go on over to fightingforthefaith.com. Click on one of the friendly yellow buttons and support us. And, of course, if you would like to do it the traditional way, make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send that to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. And let me thank you for your financial support because we truly can't do what we're doing here without it. All right, on to the program. I enjoyed making it. I hope you enjoy listening to it. Here we go. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Thursday, May 30th, 2013. Now, if you detect that my voice sounds a little scratchy, well, it is. I've been suffering through uh, grass pollen allergies. Kind of kicked up yesterday. Still continues a little bit today. But I'm, I'm fine aside from the occasional allergy attack. And it usually only lasts like the first month. Once we get into the spring and summer. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseborough. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. The idea here is you get to learn God's Word in context so that you can be protected from people who are... Well, twisting God's word and deceiving people. Now, there's a lot of folks out there that are well-meaning, but unfortunately their well-meaningness um, kind of gets lost in the mix because some of the things that they, they do out of good intentions don't jive with the scriptures. In fact, we're going to take a look at one of those things today. In fact, I should warn you, today's episode of Fighting for the Faith does not have a central theological theme. Now, Every episode, except for the ones I tell you, don't have a theme, actually do have a theme, and I know that some of you try to figure out the themes, but don't try to figure today's theme out because I couldn't work it out. Um, from time to time, what happens is there's a series of stories that I want to get to, and I can't work them into the theme that I'm trying to work on. And yes, I'm always trying to work on a theological theme. It could be something like original sin. It could be the difference between law and gospel, or the sufficiency of Scripture, or uh, the sufficiency of Christ's death on the cross for our sins, salvation by grace through faith. Think of the, you know, think big block, major theological categories, and you can oftentimes figure out what it is, the axe that I'm grinding on, on any particular episode of Fighting for the Faith. Well, this one, there is no particular um, theological theme. Maybe you can say truth versus error, but that's kind of like the overarching theme of the whole, you know, every episode of Fighting for the Faith, you know, so you have to come down to a sub point. So it doesn't really have a major sub point, if you know what I mean. So with that, I want to talk about what we're going to do on today's episode of Fighting for the Faith. We're going to start off with a listener email. I have an email that I received from somebody who attended uh, the Montana, uh, the Reformation Montana Conference, and I, in my private conversation with him, um, suggested that he listen to my uh, lecture entitled Resistance is Fuel, You'll Be Assimilated into the Community. As a result of listening to that, he now has a couple of follow-up questions, and so I'm going to answer those questions. Well, that's how we're going to start the uh, the program off. And then, in, um, and then after that, we're going to take a look at a news story, a local news story here in Indiana um, of, of a pastor 
who plans on starting, quote, a fishing church. You know, this kind of raises the whole story, uh, the whole issue of should we be starting churches based upon people's hobbies and market demographics? It's definitely wrong headed to say the least. I mean, uh, if you don't like fishing, are you not allowed to come to the fishing church? You know, what if you like hunting instead or, you know, things like that? We'll get into that. Um, and then um, after the first break, what we're going to do is we're going to um, do an extended uh, segment listening to a long portion of something Patricia King recently put out. Now, as somebody who's watched Patricia King, and literally I've seen every video that she has produced on her XP Media website for the literally the last five years, and maybe a little bit longer now that I think about it, because she was a regular feature at the Museum of Idolatry, which is something I did almost daily uh, before doing uh, Fighting for the Faith. And that's one of those websites, you know, from time to time, I just need to check out. I'll go back to doing it, and then it'll drive me crazy, and then I can't do it again for a while. But anyway, you get my point. But would you, there's, well, how do I put this? There's kind of a, a flow, an ebb and flow to the way Patricia King operates. And um, and what I mean by that is if you were to, you know, have a meter and, you know, and then on the meter there's a needle and the needle goes from like the sounds almost normal to sounds kind of weird to bizarre and crazy. You know, it, you know, it goes up into the red line where out of control looniness. Um, Patricia King early on was known for always pegging the needle at the out of control craziness, you know, from putting together videos claiming that she was uh, recording uh, uh, miracles where uh, there was gold dust falling from the heavens and there were gems falling out of the sky and, you know, things like that, Um, you know, to, to her werewolf episode and all that kind of stuff where she claims that she, you know, cast out a werewolf spirit, you know, weird stuff like that. I mean, Patricia King has a tendency to go into the crazy zone and then, and then she pulls back and then she does a whole lot of videos where she sounds almost normal, kind of bland and, you know, not all that crazy. And then all of a sudden the crazy comes out. This is one of those episodes where Patricia King um, decides not to hide most of the crazy stuff and just, just hangs it all out there. So uh, it'll be rather interesting and warrants kind of a longer look, if you would, at what it is that she's saying because what she's saying is, well, crazy and this is not biblical. In fact, we'll, we'll, I don't even want to tell you what you're going to hear. You'll hear it when we get there. And then in hour number two, we're going to be reviewing a sermon from a seeker-driven leader whom I have not reviewed recently. Um, however, I've reviewed several, you know, uh, quite a few of his sermons in the past and noted the fact that if you were, in fact, if you were to go back and look on the archives of Fighting for the Faith and type in the name Scott Hodge of The Orchard, you would note that um, there was a trajectory he was on, and I have noted this in the past, that he seemed like somebody who was literally heading out of Christianity, at least theologically jumping ship. And, um, and you know, he got you know, involved in just some crazy stuff. I mean, flat out contemplative mysticism uh, was flirting with and listening to guys like uh, Tony Jones and, and uh, Brian McLaren and others. And just somebody who, in my opinion, um, was functionally becoming either a full-blown liberal or on his way to atheism. Well, this last sermon that he preached this past Sunday, literally, aside from a couple of tiny things that he says in there, is a sermon that could have been preached by somebody who is functionally an atheist. And so I want you to hear what happens um, as people go from, 
kind of like you know, mixing in some of the leaven of liberalism and heresy into their teaching, and then that leaven taking over the whole loaf, and then eventually what happens to a pastor once they start dabbling in all of this this crazy, emergent, postmodern, seeker-driven nonsense, you know, where does it end them up? Well, it ends them up somewhere like Scott Hodge, where we're literally we're going to hear a sermon um, basically complaining about the fact that there's just not enough artists in the world. Yeah, and that um, that it's really sad that, you know, uh, according to... You know, one fa- famous artist, I think it was Picasso, all kids are born artists, but by the time they hit sixth grade, few of them are artists anymore. And it's really sad. It's truly a tragedy. And this is the thing that he's going to be preaching on. No joke. It's like you listen to it and you go, what is this? What has happened? What does this have to do with biblical Christianity? Answer, it has absolutely nothing to do with biblical Christianity. Um, this is a sermon that could literally be preached with like one small exception um, by an atheist or somebody who's functionally an atheist. So, uh, yeah, it, it kind of check back in with Scott Hodge and, you know, check to see where his theological liberalism is taking him as he goes from a half-baked liberal to a full-blown liberal. And then, you know, maybe even check out of uh, Christianity altogether. I think that's the road that he's on. And so uh, with that, we got a lot of ground to cover today. Make yourself comfortable. I think we're going to start off with our email segment. And since we're doing an email segment, it requires me to do this. Our email today comes to us via Andrew in Montana. Now, Andrew is somebody whom I had a conversation with in Montana, and while I was having a conversation with him, I strongly suggested that he listen to my lecture, Resistance is Futile. You will be assimilated into the community, and after listening to it, a couple of questions burbled up in his mind, and he thought he would ask me via email, so I'm going to answer him here on the air. Um, uh, Andrew writes, he says, I listened to the program you suggested. Resistance is futile. You'll be assimilated into the community and enjoyed it thoroughly. I do have some questions concerning it, however, if you have the time to answer them. First, I would be curious to know how you define communism compared to fascism because I have always thought of communism as a proponent of the community ideology. However, it sounds as if even the fascists recognize communism as a proponent of individualism rather than community. So to ask it simply, what is the difference between communism and fascism? Now I'm going to stop right there and say there is a difference and it's very astute of you to note that there, I was making it sound like there is a difference because there is. In fact, if you look historically, um, fascism abhorred, hated, despised, loathed, and was violent against Bolshevik Marxist communists. Why? Well, there's a very simple reason why. And that's this. In fascism, and this is going to kind of touch on question number two. In fascism, the community is the organic entity of note. Therefore, it's all about the health, well-being, and thriving of the community. And in the fascist way of thinking, communism, Bolshevik Marxist communism, you think of what was going on in Moscow, in Russia at the time of the fascists, um, has an ideological fatal flaw that makes it incompatible with a true 
concept of organic community, and here it is. Bolshevik Marxist communism is built on the concept of perpetual class warfare between the bourgeoisie and the proletariat. As a result of that, because of the constant class warfare, you know, think of it this way. You, you go into a community and you have the proletariat at war with the bourgeoisie, the bourgeoisie at war with the proletariat. One's exploiting the other. The other is fighting back against the exploitation. Do you really have true health in a community that is divided against itself like that? In the fascist way of thinking, absolutely not. And so fascists rejected um, Bolshevik Marxist uh, communism as as really something that ideologically is incompatible with the concept of organic community or fascism. And it, so they didn't want to have a community that was, it, that was at war with itself class-wise. They wanted a community that was united together by blood, by race, by whatever, um, by nation, so that they could all thrive together regardless of whether or not you were upper class or lower class or middle class. And so this is the reason why uh, fascist uh, socialism looks different than uh, the Marxist communist socialism, although socialism is a part of it. Um, this has everything to do with the fact that they were not going to tolerate um, disunity within the community based upon class warfare. And so that's why they hated communism. So now on to your second question. Secondly, what is the reasoning behind the pursuit of community? Why do fascists think that community is the solution as opposed to individualism? Does it have something to do with the subjective view of truth that they hold to? Yes and no. After all, if truth were subjective, then every individual would do what he felt true, which would lead to anarchy. On the other hand, making it all about community would create more stability as how the truth is decided by the whole rather than the individual parts. Is this a correct observation or am I wrong? You're correct to a point, but you're correct. Uh, it, it is, it's not enough. Okay. So coming back here, the idea is, is that the reasoning behind the pursuit of communities, because in their in fascist ideology, the community is organic. The community is living. The community is the thing that will continue on, not its parts. So the idea would be this: is that um, you know when you read fascist uh, you know propaganda and indoctrination materials in this, they'll talk about things like, well, listen, okay, look at a chain. A chain is an important thing, and the chain continues on even after it loses individual links. In fact, more links are added on, and the chain continues. Same thing with, with a community or organic community. The organic community existed before you as an individual showed up, and the organic con community will continue even after you die, long after you die, especially if it's healthy and thriving and moving on in the future. So the important thing then is, again, notice that they're irrational. They're not, all about, they're not about abstract truth. They're about practical truth and truth that can be applied uh, in action. So the idea then is you as an individual need to find your purpose within community. You need to find your meaning within the community. It's important that you understand that you are not important. The community is important. So you need to get busy finding the way in which you are uniquely 
crafted in order to meet the needs of the community. Now, this takes on a very dark overtone when you start talking about community health then because here's the deal. Your worth within the community is based upon your contribution to the survival and thriving of the community. If you then say you're at work and you have an accident and you become paralyzed and you're no longer able to uh, provide a purpose and a meaning that moves the community forward, you're just dead weight. Um, You are instead, you're actually kind of like a disease. You are, well, you're taking away from the resources, the limited resources that the community has to survive on. So you as an individual, you're not important. The community is important. And that's how fascism, fascism in their way of thinking then would think that it's a moral thing to, engage in, well, killing people and murder. So in order to keep the organic community thriving and surviving, especially when people aren't, don't, they don't serve a purpose within the community. Now notice I keep using that word and this is the important part. Listen carefully. Rick Warren's purpose driven life. That's all about finding your purpose in order for you to serve within the community. Think about it. Moving along. From the Indianapolis Star, the headline reads, Reeling them in, Greenfield Pastor plans a fishing church. Yeah, you unfortunately heard that correctly. Um... Dateline, Greenfield, Indiana, a Greenfield pastor hopes a planned fishing church will help get people hooked on the gospel. Yuck, 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 yuck. Did you see what they did there? Yeah, that was... Anyway, by holding Sunday afternoon worship services at a 10-acre fishing lake, Wade Compton aims to draw people who might not venture into into traditional houses of worship. Quote, Part of the Great Commission and instruction given by Jesus to his disciples is to go into all the world and invite people, said Compton, who's age 58. Our tendency in the church in recent decades has been to tell them they must come to us. So Compton is a pastor of Bradley United Methodist Church in downtown Greenfield, which is housed in a 111-year-old stately limestone building that represents exactly the kind of place Compton says some people find intimidating quote fishing church will be a place where folks can feel comfortable coming in their blue jeans or even their waders if they want Compton said they can wear hats with fishing hooks in them and just be at ease Compton himself was dressed in casual attire on Tuesday jeans and a brown t-shirt emblazoned with an image of a large mouth bass leaping at a lure and the words fishers of men across the top underneath the fish the shirt, read, uh, the shirt read, you catch them, God cleans them, a passage from Matthew 4, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. In his own spare time, the pastor seldom fishes, he said. He had the idea for his fishing church, though after he and his wife, Terry, moved onto the property containing the 10-acre lake, which at one time served as a pay lake for area anglers called PJs, Quote, we just thought there's got to be something we can do with this beautiful property for the kingdom of God, he said. I always thought there was an opportunity for some kind of ministry out here. Compton plans to start the Sunday fishing service in late June. He anticipates starting the evenings with a 45-minute service 
and a 3,100-square-foot metal pole barn on the property, a form of bait shop, has been converted into a sanctuary and is decorated in a fishing pole theme complete with a cross and a wall formed and a wall formed with fishing poles. Um, after the service, congregants can find spots around the lake with friends or family members of uh, uh, family members and fish for 90 minutes or two hours. The fishing will be catch and release, he said, and all are welcome to be part of the service and take part in the free fishing, he said. Quote, it might be interesting for wives who have husbands who don't go to church, he said. Maybe they'll have some interest, or it might work out for people who want to expose their children to some fishing. They'll get to be part of a comfortable, informal service with some music and message and praise and some Bible study. A professor at the Christian Theological Seminary praised Compton's creativity. Quote, it's a great idea. It's very postmodern in the sense that it takes the message of the gospel outside the institution and places it in the world where people are, said Ron Allen, a professor at the seminary since 1982. He's making use of ancient evangelistic techniques, which is to coordinate what people do with the resources of the gospel so there will be a natural conversation between them. He also picks up in a direct way one of the important important themes in the gospel, which is to think of the missionary life in fishing language. Compton's idea is unique, the professor added. This is absolutely the first time I've heard of what you might call a fishing ministry, Alan said. Fishing is a great context in which people can build relationships. Fishing on a lake, most of the time you're sitting there talking to one another, which gives you the opportunity to become acquainted, to build trust and get perspectives on life other than your own, and to offer perspectives on life to other people. Um, <clears throat> um, there's something seriously wrong with this. Um, let's just talk practical here for a second. I happen to live in central Indiana. Know the weather in Greenfield. And you know what happens in the summertime? It gets hot, muggy, and buggy. And so, um, yeah, I mean, he may be able to attract a few people who enjoy fishing, but what if they don't like fishing? What if they don't like hot, muggy, and buggy? And then by the time, you know, what happens is when the school year comes around, it starts cooling off, and then it starts getting cold and windy, and then it snows in the wintertime. Um, fishing church, well, it it probably has some serious things to overcome. And the other thing is, is that, well... Um, Jesus called us to do more than just call fishermen or anybody based upon a particular hobby or market segment. The market segment that Jesus wants us to go for are sinners of every tribe, tongue, and nation. And yeah, he's creative, and I'm glad that he's trying to figure out a way to reach people with the gospel. Um, and I won't, I, since I haven't met the guy, I don't know if he's a liberal United Methodist or if he's one of the guys who actually holds and believes the gospel still. I have no clue. Um, but see, here's the thing. This is, this is just wrongheaded. This is absolutely wrongheaded. What we should be doing is training up the people within our church to share the gospel with everybody that they come into in their everyday life. And then you know what happens is is they share the gospel and Christ redeems them and causes them to be born from above, born again and regenerate. And then they show up to church, you know, to be fed and cared for. That's generally how the church has grown. And yeah, although it's clever and cute that you're going to meet with sports people, again, there's something seriously wrong with a church whose primary reason for coming together 
is not God's word and not the Lord's Supper and baptism, but the primary reason they're coming together is, well, get on with the sermon, Pastor. We want to go fishing. Yeah, <clears throat> I mean, we'd all see that there's a problem with this if you know some enterprising, young, uh, creative, postmodern type decided to get together and say, you know what we're going to do? Uh, we've done a market survey and found that there's a whole lot of people that really like game shows. And so we're going to come up with game show church. See, they come in this Sunday. We're going to, we're going to call some people out of the audience and volunteers and we're going to play jeopardy. And we'll, of course we'll throw in Bible questions and stuff like that. And the next week we'll play, let's make a deal. And then the next week after that, we're going to play um, the price is right. And we're going to do that all at church because we've learned that there's a bunch of people who would come to church and they would never come to church. If it wasn't for the fact that we're going to, we're going to turn our, our, our church into, you know, a, basically a perpetual Sunday afternoon game show. Yeah, you see the problem there? They're not coming for word and the Lord's Supper and to hear about the cross and Christ and the forgiveness of sins. They're coming for the game show. That So in other words, Christ is really a secondary thought, not the primary. And that's not the reason why people are going to church. I can tell you this. The church I am a member at, the church I teach at, there are people who, with a wide variety of interests, wide variety of musical tastes, wide variety of hobbies and things like that. We have we, we have a family. The the husband's a doctor, and the and then you got me. I you know I'm a theologian, and then you got farmers in the congregation, and then you got guys who you know who one guy's a janitor, and you know what? We all have all these different things that we do on any given day of the week. But you know the one thing we do all together, Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, is come to church, hear that our sins are forgiven, hear the preached word of God, hear the gospel, take the Lord's Supper together. We do that every single Sunday. And the glue that binds us together are not our hobbies and interests, but our crucified and risen Savior and His word. Big difference. So, yeah, I don't care how many people you have coming to fishing church. The primary reason for being there is fishing and not to hear the word of God and to receive the Lord's Supper. Well, it sounds to me they got their priorities wrong. That's not really a church. That's basically a fishing hobby club with a Christian veneer. All right, we're up on our first break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or follow me on Twitter, my name there, at pirate Christian. Quick break. When we come back, we have an extended Patricia King segment that we're going to be doing here. Don't want to miss it. Stay tuned. We will be right back. Relevance Schmelevance. We preach Christ crucified for our sins. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. This is the air I breathe. This is the air I breathe. I've had enough of this sissy, pansy, turning photo written music. You have the audacity to call worship. Men, put this entire girly praise band in the boo box. 
Let's wheel in the organ and get some real worship music underway. Ye be listening to Pirate Christian Radio. presents Church Day Select. And uh, greetings to the Wallace Tapley Show. I'm your host, Wallace Tapley, and my official title is the only mostly accurate prophet of the end times. Uh, some of my competitors call me the second and two tens weasel of the apocalypse, but I do my best to ignore their comments of hate and derision. I, I do have an update this week. Uh, yes, uh, my direct revelations from God this week had told me something very, very special. It should be coming in right about now. Oh, this is a goodie. It reads, This blessing is for a certain person who's currently living in Italy and is the owner of a bistro. It says that you'll be receiving one million euros. Uh, make that 500,000. Uh, 10,000. Five. Oh, um, yes, you're receiving five euros today. Heaven be praised. Oh, it seems that I'm getting another download. I do believe that it's the result of next year's Super Bowl. Uh, this could turn out to be very profitable indeed. It says the winner of the next year's Super Bowl will be the Chicago Cubs. No, wait, that's not right. I, I mean the L.A. Lakers. No, that's not right either. I, I, I do apologize, folks. My computer suffers from Plato's tenfold error syndrome from time to time. Oh, here we go. It says... Handshake error. Well, that's all the time we have for today, folks. See you next time on the Wallace Tapley Show. Goodbye! Purchased your airline tickets for your summer getaway yet? If not, don't pay more for your airfare, hotel room, or rental car than you need to. Long time Pirate Christian Radio 
Featured advertiser Cheapo Air is your one-stop shop for all of your travel needs. And we've got a special promo code for you to use at Cheapo Air to save an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. So visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, then click on the web banner and book your travel today. And remember... A portion of your purchase will go to support Pirate Christian Radio. That website address, again, is piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. And thank you for your support. Cowabunga. Mark your calendar now for April 25, 26, and 27, 2014. You see, it's not too soon to be making your plans, saving your pennies, and asking for work off April 25, 26, and 27 of 2014 for the 11th annual Branson Worldview Weekend. This past year, we had people from all over the country and actually from other countries join us in the beautiful rolling hills of Branson, Missouri. So if you're looking to attend the premiere Understanding the Times Biblical Worldview Weekend and join us April 25, 26, and 27 of 2014 for the Branson Worldview Weekend. It's for all ages. Children 11 and under are free. We also have a group rate and a family rate. The Worldview Weekends have been around since 1993. So we're one of the oldest Biblical Worldview conferences in America. So mark your calendar now for Branson, Missouri, April 25, 26, and 27, 2014. Warning, what you're about to hear on Fighting for the Faith could cause you bodily harm. Please take all the proper and necessary precautions before you listen to this next segment. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. And you can partner with us financially by visiting our website, Fighting for the Faith. Dot com. When you get there, you'll see our two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. And when you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. Of course, if you'd like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you could do so by clicking on the donate button or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 508 Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Moving along. So, um, <clears throat> when was the last time you heard Patricia King go on a prophetic bender? <laughs> well, if it's been a while, like I said, you might want to take all of the necessary precautions because that's exactly what it is that you're about to hear. Without any further ado, here's Patricia King, and keep in mind, I did warn you. Well, hello. Um, on today's lesson, I want to share with you um, in a bit a personal encounter that I had when I was taken up into the heavens. A lot of times when I have my personal devotion time, I will actually ascend up into the heavens and different realms and places there. Really? Uh-huh. <clears throat> 
And this is not drug-induced. And I meet with the Lord, and I meet with um, uh, different messengers that Jesus sends in the heavenly dimension. I've been into wisdom's chambers a lot since uh, December 8, 2012. But um, the Lord's preparing us for a massive outpouring of His Spirit. And one of the things that He has highlighted is that it is going to be an outpouring of His grace. Now, when I say grace, I want to make it really clear before anyone makes any assumptions. I'm not talking about what some people do with grace and say, oh, well, I'm covered under grace. I can just sin. I can do, do, do whatever I want. Because really, when you have really, really encountered true grace, you actually cannot sin. Right. Um, mm-hmm. <sighs> yeah. Where does it say that in the Bible? Um, I can't think of any place that actually says that. In fact, um, I would point you to First John that says the exact opposite of it. And the fact that you're sitting here telling us your false prophecies tells us that you are not somebody who has ceased from sinning. In fact, you recording this video, Patricia, with all of your false prophecies and weird stuff that you are claiming, uh, you know, direct revelations that contradict Scripture and you just contradicted Scripture— Um, You're actually sinning right now. This is called blasphemy. This is what it means to take God's name in vain. Because the grace of God is actually that which not only offers you favor and complete acceptance that is undeserved and unmerited favor, but it also is God's divine influence upon your heart that enables you, that empowers you to fulfill the word of God and the will of God in your life. And verses for that, please. And when you're under grace, there's no effort. You know, you just do it. So when people say to me, yeah, I, I, I like sinning and I still sin, but I'm under grace. I thought, you haven't tasted grace yet. Because when the power of grace is on you, you'll become like Jesus. You'll just be led right into his nature, right into his character. Mm. And so um, I want... And which Bible verse says that again? To preempt today's message with that. But the Lord showed me that this revival that is coming, and revival again is not the right word for it, but that's what I'm using. Yeah. Um, how much do you want to bet this has something to do with this October tent revival thing that she's putting on out there in Phoenix? Hmm. This sounds like she's trying to build up prophetic expectations, so to speak, for the event that she is going to be putting on. Um, but this outpouring that's coming is going to be a holiness-type revival, but not like in the days past. It is going to be an outpouring of grace to such an extent that everyone will look upon him and be under the influence to become like him. Under the influence. Mm -hmm. may not want to drive after whatever this thing is. Sinners overnight, in an instant of time, will be transformed by his glory and his grace. It's going to be amazing. Jesus said that he came with grace and truth. And so... um, Yeah, and you're not speaking the truth, so this has nothing to do with Jesus. I just love this subject, but in a moment, I'm going to share with you about my heavenly encounter that I had on April 11th, uh, 2013. But um, I want to read to you a scripture first. It's 2 Corinthians 12, verse 9. And when I was in the glory realm this last week, the Lord had given me this scripture. And it's a rhema word. It is a... Oh, so this is a direct revelation. you you got to pay attention here. A, a word that you can can receive into your heart is for this. Yeah, now I got to point this out. Again, this is kind of, this is not unique, what we're listening to. Patricia King pulls out 
this type of stuff from time to time. It's just that I think she, in the years, in the past few years, she's really tried to dial this back. And, well, <clears throat> I hate to put it this way, like a dog returns to his vomit. Um, now she's going on another prophetic bender here and, you know, kind of letting out all of her crazy roots. This particular time in church history, I believe it's for every believer to soak in and delight in and taste of the goodness of it. The Apostle Paul writes that it's out of 2 Corinthians 12, 9. And we know that the Apostle Paul was called the Apostle of Grace. And he said, this is what was, uh, this is what he said. It says, and he, Jesus, Jesus himself said to me, my grace, and remember that grace is God's loving kindness, his undeserved, unmerited favor towards you, his acceptance, and it is his influence upon your heart, turning you to Christ and fulfilling obedience to him. It's the fullness of his benefits and his bounty. So he said to Paul, and he says to you, Jesus says directly to you, my grace, the substance of my grace is sufficient for you. And the word sufficient means more than enough. In other words, it is actually, his grace is actually all that you need. Uh, you need that and the glory and um, trips to heaven and things like that. Because she's speaking out of both sides of her mouth. To become like him, to please him, to fulfill your destiny call. To fulfill your destiny. Now let's take a look at this passage in context. We're going to apply our three rules for sound biblical interpretation or exegesis. And we're going to apply them. They are context, context, context. So is Second uh, Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9, a specific word particularly to you about you, God's grace is sufficient for you to fulfill <clears throat> your dreams. Now, by the way, Second Corinthians chapter 12, uh, there we have, um, for lack of a better way of putting it, we actually have an actual trip that the Apostle Paul took, just like Isaiah, into uh, the heavenly kingdom. And he writes about it in such a way that he talks about it in third person. And you'll kind of get what's going on here as I read it. Second Corinthians chapter 12, verse 1, I must go on boasting, Though there is nothing to be gained by it, I will I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. Now, there are people who've had true true revelations of the Lord. I trust the Apostle Paul's revelation. Why? Because, well, um, Jesus appeared to him and sent him as an apostle to the Gentiles, and he's written like you know quite a bit of the New Testament, and so it's inspired by the Holy Spirit. The Apostle Paul is a unique individual and one of the few people who've had these types of visions of the heavenly kingdom. I trust them, but I don't trust Patricia King because what the Apostle Paul preached and taught is sound doctrine in the measure by which we stand, uh, we judge people like Patricia King, whereas Patricia King, she is a false prophetess. She teaches false doctrine, and therefore, I don't believe any of the so-called revelations that she receives because she can't stand in any biblical test. And this is an example where she's twisting God's word. So I continue, though. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether in body or out of the body, I don't know. God knows. And I know this man was caught up into paradise. Whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. So notice notice what's going on here. Paul's saying, okay, and notice he's talking about himself in third person, and he can't even utter the things that he saw and heard. Okay, On behalf of this man I will boast, but on my own behalf I will not boast, except of my weaknesses, though if I should wish to boast I would not be a fool, 
for I would be speaking the truth, but I refrain from it so that no uh, so no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. Now notice, he's doing this in such a way, he's only going to boast in his weaknesses, not even in this vision, so that no one would think more of him than they ought. Because he is a sinner saved by grace just like you and I, right? So, to keep me from becoming conceited, verse 7, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations... A thorn was given me in the flesh, which was a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. And three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Now, she just took verse 9 completely out of context. And if she had read the rest of the context, she wouldn't be saying the things that she's about to say that you're about to hear. We continue. It says, my grace is sufficient for you for power. And that word power there is dunamis. It means miracle working power or the power to work miracles. It means excellence of soul. It is the influence of wealth. It means military might. And it says for... You're just pouring every single definition of dunamis into the word dunamis. question is, what does that word mean in that context? His power... That power that can make you excellent of soul and, and, and give proper alignment in your body, soul, and spirit can work any miracle you need to bring heaven into your earthly realm. That's not what he's saying. That power is perfected. It's made complete. It's brought into fullness in weakness. And that weakness means the frailty and poor capacity of your body and soul. So if you're feeling weak in issues, if you're feeling like things aren't perfect on the inside of you, it could be maybe even a body um, ailment or, or weakness that you're... you're uh, is- Again, it's weird. She just said she doesn't sin anymore, and yet she's sinning by twisting God's word here. Weird, huh? Struggling with. It says that his grace is sufficient. His enabling power, his influence upon your life is sufficient for you because his miracle working power, his transforming power, that which makes your soul excellent, that which heals the body is made complete, brought into its fullness in the midst of your weakness because... Yeah, you just totally, utterly messed up that passage. And you did it oh so cleverly by ripping it out of its context and then pouring into certain words every single meaning assigned to that word from the lexicon. But words only have one meaning in context. And so this interpretation that you've come up with isn't an interpretation, it's a twisting. This is what it means to take God's name in vain. You're sinning, Patricia. If there wasn't any weakness, there wouldn't be anything to manifest the glory of God on. So the Apostle Paul said, Most gladly, therefore, will I rather boast, which means to glory on account of a thing. I would rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. And that word dwelling in me, that that word to dwell, it actually means that God comes upon you like a tent of his presence and comes and fills you. 
So the Apostle Paul wasn't saying, I'm going to boast in my weaknesses because I want to stay inside the weakness. No. He was saying, God has told me that this power of grace is sufficient for me to become complete in him, to manifest his presence in every way. So I'm going to boast in my weaknesses because his power, his miracle working power, and that which makes my soul excellent, that dunamis power of God is made perfect in the midst of my weakness. It has an opportunity to manifest. Yeah, you cannot get this twisting it wouldn't stand if you had just read the passage in context. The reason why Christ said to him, my grace is sufficient, is because he was sent a messenger of Satan, a thorn in the flesh, to keep him from being conceited because of the things that he saw and heard, which he couldn't mention when he went to the third heaven. That's what that's all about. Fully in my weakness. So that's why we can boast about our weakness, not that we want to stay in it, We boast before God saying, God, I'm weak. I can't do this myself. All my striving and everything, I can't do it myself. I'm flawed within, but I want to be like you. And he says, okay, I've got a grace package for you. Because Yeah, no, that's not what this passage is saying at all. My grace is sufficient for that weakness that you're acknowledging. And when you humble yourself before God like that and then exalt him, and his grace and his greatness, then he'll come and dwell upon you with his dunamis power like a tent and enable you to come into freedom from the very weakness that you are struggling with. Yeah, no, this passage doesn't say any of that. And it's it's all to his glory. It's him doing it. It's not you striving for it. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes perfect sense because you twisted God's word and I saw you do it and pointed it out along the way. Now, with that in mind, I want to share with you. I'm actually going to read to you right out of my journal. Okay, get ready. This is scripture she's reading because this is a direct revelation of the heavenly kingdom that she experienced. So in a way, I'm taking a risk because this is very personal. It was when I was up in the glory realm, I was having an encounter with Jesus, and I was scribing the encounter as it was happening so I wouldn't forget even one detail of it. So it's personal, but I believe it's for you. I believe that there's keys in here for all of us. Now, I might preempt it with saying I'd been... In- now, as you listen to this, just contrast it with what I read from the Apostle Paul from First Corinthians, it Second Corinthians, uh, 2 Corinthians 12, verses 1 through 10. I read it to you in context. Contrast the Apostle Paul's attitude towards what he saw with this. In the heavens for a day or two prior to this one with Jesus showing me about the preparation of the bride of Christ. And anyone who longs, who has that inner longing in them to be the bride, the Holy Spirit will prepare you by grace to have the desire of your heart fulfilled. And I think all of us, no matter how much you know the love of God, like I understand the love of God. I I know it in my head. I I believe the love of God. He loves us with an everlasting love. He he really does. But how many of us, including myself, at times we we struggle to receive the fullness. Like, how could he love me so much because I'm so unworthy, I'm so imperfect, I'm so weak, right? So this, with that as a backdrop, I'm going to share with you a part of my journal. I'm going to read it directly out of it. I had been led by some angels down a corridor that was filled with light to meet Jesus. And they were whispering to one another, 
She's here. Here she comes. Here she comes. That's how important you are to Jesus. Uh, Jesus is waiting for you and all the angels are waiting. Here she comes. Tell them. Tell the master she's coming. Okay. So um, so the angels were excited. Tell the master. Here comes Patricia. That's how important she is. An angel had come out and led me in. Jesus had walked out of his his office to meet me when the angel had directed me in. It says, Jesus walked me into his office from the corridor. His office was full of radiant light and glory. There was a sofa that he led me to. We sat down. An angel who seemed to be his assistant brought him a gift box and then went back and stood by the door. He put it in my hands and he said, open. I opened it, still feeling rather unworthy and a bit awkward. Within was a beautiful garment. It was a milky cream color, a beautiful fabric, like quality, delicate linen. And when I say linen, I'm meaning like it was so like thin and delicate. It was almost like silk, but I knew in my spirit that it was linen. It says in the Bible that um, the bride is clothed in linen. And linen is the righteous acts of the saints. And in Ezekiel, it says when the priesthood went into the holy... Well, if the uh, if you would be clothed in your righteous acts, well, you'd practically be naked. Place. They couldn't go in with wool garments or anything that would make them sweat. They had to take those off and put linen garments on because linen doesn't make you sweat. And what that's indicative of is it's not our righteousness, but his. It's not our striving, but what he accomplished. So I saw this delicate linen, and it had fine pearls and rich lace, almost ancient-looking the garment was, yet new, brand new. When I touched it, I could feel its weight, and I was reminded that the word glory actually means weight sometimes, and it was like that was the feeling when I was holding it. It was like I was holding the weight of glory. I could feel it saturated with love, light, and life. From Jesus, it seemed to contain delicate threads also from past moves of the spirit, from mankind's history. Each thread was so fine and delicate. Threads were filled with vibrating life and light. They seemed like they might contain touches of silver, gold, reflecting light, threads that glistened in the glory of his presence. I hope you can just get an just a little glimpse of what this garment, this beautiful garment looked like within the gift box. The pearls were so lovely. I realized that each pearl represented the glorious work of the bridegroom as he wrapped rough irritants of the flesh of man with his grace and glory and created a jewel of great worth, beauty, and glory. And you know, in the natural, that's how pearls are formed within the oyster, is that this irritant, like it might be a piece of sand or something, it starts irritating the oyster. So it wraps pearl around it until it becomes soft and beautiful. And those are very, very precious gems, pearls are. So he wraps rough irritants of the flesh of men with his grace and glory and creates a jewel of great worth. (laughs) 
beauty and glory. There were hundreds of those little pearls sewn into the garment. I was examining individual pearls, feeling a sense of awe at their beauty. I realized that the beauty was not as a result of the individuals they represented, but the work of grace the master had achieved in each life. He took something so worthless and condemned and created an object of great value and stunning glory. Each pearl so unique, not one the same, each telling its own story. I touched individual pearls, looking at them closely as I realized the great significance of each one of them to Jesus. He could see my adoration. And he- yeah, I, I bet he could, um, except for none of this actually happened. Not with the real Jesus. He smiled. He said, with great care, precision, and love, I sewed each of them into your garment myself. I specifically and carefully chose the exact ones I wanted for your garment, he explained with a sense of delight. He touched one little pearl that was by the neckline. This one represents Amy Semple McPherson, he said. You know her as a great revivalist, but what made her great was my grace. Oh, she was flawed in so many ways, yet she loved me and believed in my goodness, love, and mercy. Every time she leaned to me and trusted in my strength, instead of her own abilities and accomplishments, I wrapped another layer of grace around her. Her life is now a beautiful pearl set into the archives of man's history that will tell... Yeah, that's right. The false prophetess, Amy Semple McPherson. ...testify my goodness in the realm of time and for all eternity in heaven. Isn't this pearl beautiful? He then pointed to others. This one represents Mariah Woodworth Etter, and this one Catherine Kuhlman. This one over here represents John G. Lake. He continued to point out... Yeah, the entire pantheon of uh, Pentecostal false prophetesses and prophets. Pearls representing great revivalists such as Smith Wigglesworth, A.A. Allen, Evan Roberts, Jonathan Edwards, William and Catherine Booth, Martin Luther, the Apostle Paul. Martin Luther. You're going to put Martin Luther in there with Catherine Kuhlman and Amy Semple McPherson. Oh, man. Serious? And many more. He said, these ones all became great because of my grace. They all recognized their own frailty, their own weaknesses, and that is what led them to grace. He looked at me with such excitement in his eyes. I prepared this garment for you, especially. It is yours because I love you, and I want you to be arrayed with the very things that I delight in. Each one of these represents my great grace and perfect love. That is what made each of these ones great in the eyes of God. Isn't it just amazing that Patricia King, I mean... She's so much on Jesus's love list that she gets to make these special trips all the way to the heavenly kingdom. And she gets a special garment from from Jesus himself with all the pearls, including a pearl representing Martin Luther and all. Like, oh, don't you wish you were like Patricia? And in the eyes of man, do you want to see my most favorite pearl on the garment? I responded, of course I do. He pointed to one in the very front and center of the dress. It seemed slightly larger than the other pearls when I looked closer, and it had a unique coloring to it. It actually reflected different soft tones depending on what angle Jesus was looking on it at. 
The light of his countenance highlighted various colors and aspects. He truly was stunning. It, it truly was stunning, and yet it was not demanding my attention. It was set perfectly into its place along with the others. Jesus said with delight in his voice, Yes, this is my most favorite one on the garment. Who is it? I asked. With boastful pleasure in his voice, he said, This is Amara Grace Joseph. He literally lit up when he mentioned her name. I'd never heard of her and was somewhat embarrassed as I thought perhaps I should. He knew my wrestling and went on to introduce me to this amazing saint. Amara is not known to man, but she is really known in heaven. As a young girl, her parents and siblings were killed in a revolution. She was the only survivor in her entire household. She was injured for life, though, due to a bullet in her leg that eventually caused the loss of the leg. A missionary found her, left for dead after the rebels came into her village and not only killed most in the village, but they burned everything down, too. There was not a house left standing. Jesus said, little Amara grew up in an orphanage and was led to me by the missionaries. Although she had suffered so much tragedy, she was always happy and always laid her life down to serve others. She had rough areas like everyone else, but she trusted my love for her. She walked close to me, believing my love, trusting in my grace to perfect things in her. She maintained childlike faith her entire life, and great miracles took place through her hands, although very few in the earth know of them. She gave us great delight in heaven as we looked on. Every day she drew strength from my spirit. Listen to this. I knew her well because she constantly visited me. Oh, yeah, just like you, Patricia. You're just like Amara. She gave her life to helping abandoned children, orphans. Each day she served with love, rescuing as many as she could. She asked nothing for herself. She was not interested in fame, and yet she will be known by all in the kingdom for all eternity. Her love for me will never go unnoticed. She is one of my most special laid-down lovers. She had so little in the eyes of man, and yet she gave everything she had. Amara is a great pearl, so precious to me, and I sewed the pearl of her remembrance into your garment. Jesus lit up as he spoke about Amara. She truly had a special place in his heart. Her humble, childlike, yielded heart was a great gift to him. She seemed to bring more delight to him than all the other pearls on the garment. He knew what I was thinking and whispered, They are all special, all of them. And I want their stories represented in the garment that I created for you. I was humbled beyond words. What a privilege to have her pearls sewn into my garment as well as the other revivalists. I felt so unworthy again, and Jesus knew how I was feeling. He said, all mankind is unworthy. Do you not understand that yet? So you know who Jesus is pointing us to, apparently? Well, Patricia King. Patricia King isn't really pointing us to Jesus because this story is about how Jesus is doting on Patricia King. It is the celebration of my grace in the midst of your weakness that causes my power to create in you my purpose for you. 
I am preparing you to be my bride, but it is not because you are worthy. It is because I love you. It is because you celebrate my grace, the gift of my life, freely given for you. Oh, how I love you. Oh, how I love all mankind. That is why I hung on the tree. That is why I paid the price for man's sins. I love mankind more than you could ever know. I wait daily for those who will respond to the gift. Accept my gift of grace. Mm, see, there's, there's the Pelagian heresy that, again, tells me this isn't the biblical Jesus. Jesus isn't waiting for people to respond. Nope. God is the one who regenerates people. Grace, except even greater grace, where this amazing grace will transform you. I will accomplish in and through you the desires of your heart. And my beautiful one, and he would say that to each one of you, I know... If only you could travel to heaven like I have, he would say the same thing to you too. Oh, what your desire is. I want to assure you, I will give you the desires of your heart. My grace will perfect in you all that is needed for the fulfillment of your deepest longing. Mm-hmm. Oh, what a Jesus this is. The Jesus who wants to give you the power to fulfill your deepest longings. This is not the biblical Jesus. This is a demon. And did you notice the difference? The difference between the Apostle Paul and Patricia. Let me go back again. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. This is the Apostle Paul writing about his real trip to the third heavens, the heavenly kingdom. It says, I must go on boasting, though there is nothing to be gained by it. I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven, whether in body or out of the body, I, I don't know, God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise, whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know, God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. On behalf of this man, I will boast, but on my own behalf, I will not boast, except of my weaknesses. Though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool for I would be speaking the truth, but I refrain from it, so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. Notice Paul doesn't even want to talk about himself in the first person or discuss these things in order that people would not think more of him. And yet, who was Jesus doting on up there in this conversation that Patricia had? Patricia. Boy, it makes people want to think a lot about Patricia, doesn't it? Not so much about Jesus, right? Paul continues, so to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. This is the exact polar opposite of what we heard from Patricia King. Her going on and on and on and on from her personal journal of her trips to heaven and how God was, how Jesus was giving her all this 
incredible stuff and these these great things and just doting on her is the exact opposite of what we see in the Apostle Paul, who truly did go up to the third heavens. Patricia King hasn't. And how do I know this? Simple. She twists God's word, and her visions are all about her. All right, we're up on our second break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. You can follow me on Twitter. My name there at pirate Christian. Quick break when we come back. We're going to be doing a sermon review about how the world doesn't have enough artists. Yeah, no joke. Stay tuned. Don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. It's like what not to wear for theology. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Pirate Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... You're listening to Byron Christian Radio. Have you purchased your airline tickets for your summer getaway yet? If not, don't pay more for your airfare, hotel room, or rental car than you need to. Long-time Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheapo Air is your one-stop shop for all of your travel needs. And we've got a special promo code for you to use at Cheapo Air to save an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. So visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Write down the promo code, then click on the web banner and book your travel today. And remember, a portion of your purchase will go to support Pirate Christian Radio. That website address, again, is piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. And thank you for your support. Cowabunga. Come in. What was I just doing, you might ask? Well, I just conquered the outer rim planet of Pico Palm with my trusty double-barreled nuclear plasma cannon. Well, I just did in this video game. But how is it possible for someone like myself to play 13 hours straight and not get a headache? It's quite simple, really. It's because I wear gunners. When I'm rocking these babies, I'm unstoppable. They're not limited to just games, mind you. Oh, no! I rock the spreadsheet, the PowerPoint, the word processor, and when that's all done, I hop my T-16 and fry me some toasters. If you want to get in on the action, then head over to piratechristianradio.com forward slash gunners. You gotta see it to believe it.
Okay, we're back. Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith sermon review time. Time for us to check back in with Scott Hodge. It's been a while. And I would point out that in that amount of time, Scott Hodge has drifted badly. But then he was already drifting. Here we go. The good, the bad, the ugly, we review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermon comes to us via the Orchard, Aurora, Illinois, Scott Hodge uh, presiding. The name of this sermon, which I think could be literally preached by an atheist, with like one small exception, is called The New Artist's Stories. Stories. The New Artist's Stories. As you listen to the sermon, pay close attention to the setup as to what the problem is. Once you understand what the problem is, you'll understand the solution that he's looking for. Rather than tell you, I'll let him tell you, and it just gets worse from there. This is what I would consider to be kind of like a stop on the way to unbelief for Scott Hodge. I don't think he actually believes at all. Historic Christian orthodoxy. I think he's re-thunk, re-imagined, retooled Christianity because, I mean, he makes a, a paycheck from being a seeker-driven leader. He sure doesn't understand or preach or confess historic orthodox Christianity, nor is he really interested in, in exegeting and preaching what Scripture really teaches. And instead, we got, well, this... And again, this is preached by somebody who I think at this point is may as well be a functional atheist. So let me go ahead and kill the music. Without any further ado, here is Scott Hodge in his sermon entitled The New Artist's Stories. So I want to I wanna begin with a story, an um, interesting story about a guy by the name of Gordon McKenzie. Um, Gordon McKenzie was, um, was an author who wrote about creativity, and he was also known as sort of the creative genius behind Hallmark Cards. And, and once in a while, the, this guy, Gordon McKenzie, he would go around and he would speak at schools and he would talk to the kids about uh, things like creativity and art and all that kind of stuff. And, and uh, often when he did that, he would start out he, by, by telling them that he was an artist, he was a designer, and he would talk to them about that a little bit. And then as a part of his thing, his speech or whatever it is, he would, he would sort of look around the room and he would notice all the artwork that was hanging on the walls. You, you know how it is in classrooms, right? Uh, see the artwork and, and he, would, he would look at it and he would admire it sort of out loud in front of the kids. And he would say, wow, this is great artwork. What, what great masterpieces. And he would sort of uh, wonder out loud, like, who created this? Who, who are these great artists? And he would say to the kids, uh, and he would always ask the same question. He would say, all right, I just got to ask, how many artists are in this room right now? And, and the responses, interestingly enough, always followed the same pattern. Here's what would happen. In kindergarten and in first grade, every hand would shoot up really high. And then he would go to the second grade class. How many of you are artists? And, well, about three quarters of the kids raised their hand. Then he would go into third grade where only, well, a few would raise their hands. 
And, and then he would go into sixth grade where he would ask that question and not a single hand would go up in that room. I, I think Picasso really hit the nail on the head when, when, when he said that, that quote that's very famous, every child is an artist. The problem is how to remain an artist once we grow up. Ah, yeah, wow. Whew. Yeah, because Picasso is found in the Bible just after, well, wait a minute, Picasso isn't found in the Bible. So is it a problem that so few sixth graders consider themselves to be artists? Or as Picasso says, that everyone's born an artist, but the problem is, well, helping them to stay artists as they become adults. Hmm. I didn't think Christianity had anything to offer regarding this particular problem. I thought the solu- the problem was that all of us is, are born with a corrupt, sinful nature, born dead in trespasses and sins, in need of a Savior, and that God sent His only begotten Son so that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have everlasting life. It makes me wonder, I mean, if I'm not artistic, am I outside of the will of God? I mean... This is the setup. That's the problem. So the solution is we need more artists. And apparently Christianity is going to help us solve the the problem of there being so few artists in the world. Yeah, listen in. I think that's probably the, the challenge, not just for us as we're, as we're children growing up, but I think it's probably the challenge for all of us in our lives today. Now, over these past eight weeks, we've, we've been on a pretty interesting journey, haven't we? Um, we've, we've learned a lot of, a lot of things. We've, we've asked some great questions. We've, uh, we've heard some great stories. We, we've, we've had some great conversation and all these types of things. And as we sort of came down to this last weekend of this series, what I, what I really felt like we should do was, you know, instead of trying to explore another new idea or, or, or another new idea about art or creativity, um, because, you know, you could talk so much about all, all of these things. Um, what I thought we would do instead was, uh, and I think what's, what could be important for us to do, is to sort of take a step back today. And, and, and sort of take like maybe a 30,000 foot view and t- take a look at, at what it is we've been, re- really what it is that God has been saying to us as a community over these last several weeks. But I think even more importantly, what God's been saying to you as an individual over, the, over these last several weeks. And so to help us do that, what I'm going to do is I want to give you today a handful of words. It's very simple words. Some of these are going to be recognizable words you've heard recently. Um, but these are words that I think not only represent the journey that we've been on over these past few weeks, but they're words that, that I think actually, and even more importantly, what I think these words do is they, they describe who we are and, and what it is that we ought to be about as new artists, so we're going to talk through these. And then- so we, what we ought to be about as new artists? Where does the Bible say I'm supposed to be a new artist? And then after we're done with that, we're going to all practice being artists. And we're going to participate in a community art project today. Sound good? No, it doesn't. Your job is to preach the word. Why aren't you doing that? Great. <laughs> wow. Well, I feel excited about it inside anyway. So, all right. So anyway, let me give you these words. I'm not going to spend a ton of time on these. So you might want to write them down if you have a pen and uh, something to write on. But let me, give you, let me give you the first word. The first word is a word that you've heard actually quite a bit throughout this series. And it is uh, the word rehumanize. So- mm, rehumanize. Where's that found in the Bible? Yeah, it's not. Say that with me. Ready? 
rehumanize. Now, rehumanize is an interesting word. Um, it's a word that probably for about the last four months has been kind of stirring in me. And, and it's, uh, and it came, the, the, it's stirring in you, huh? Yeah, your job is to preach the word, not words that are stirring in you. Rehumanize is not a word found in the Bible. Your job is to preach the word, Scott. The word, I was thinking about this whole idea of like dehumanizing and how quickly we are to dehumanize ourselves. And as a result, we dehumanize others so easily. We don't like to use the word dehumanize, but we do it. And, and, and so uh, this idea of like rehumanizing kind of excites me because I think there are just way too many people who, are, who have sort of settled into a life that is far below the kind of life that God has created them to live. They've settled and, and they, they haven't just settled, but they've become okay with it. And, and they've sort of now taken on this new definition of like, well, this is, this is what it's like to be a human being. And so I think what we need and what the world needs and this message. I think what we need and what the world needs. Notice those words. I think what we need. Your job is not to actually tell us what you think we need. Your job is to tell us what God's word reveals that God has provided for us for our problem. It goes far beyond these walls. What this world needs, what we need, is, I, I think, a, a better vision or a new vision or a better idea, better picture uh, of what it means to be truly human. You know, Genesis chapter 1, I mean, says it. Now, here's the part where I say an atheist wouldn't go here, but it's not a right handling of the text. Because notice, this is pre-fall. When you read Genesis 3, we deal with the fall of man, and then from there forward, Human beings are born in the likeness of Adam and Eve, which means they have a sinful nature. So clearly, Genesis 1 tells us God created human beings in his own image. In fact, let's read it together, can we? Ready? God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. And we don't always see the image of God when we look into the mirror, right? When we look at ourselves... We see a lot of things, but often, very seldom do we look at ourselves and go, wow, I am an image of God. Yeah, that's because you're skipping the important part about how man rebelled against God and was now born dead in trespasses and sins. The image of God is broken, corrupted. It's there, but barely. Instead, we are all born dead in trespasses and sins. As Jesus said, you are of your father, the devil. That's what Jesus says about all sinful fallen humanity. Most of us don't wake up Monday morning. I am an image of God. And so, you know, what happens is we, we start to believe the wrong things. And, 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 you know, it becomes very tempting, I think, for us to begin to define human beings as all kinds of things that are way off and way different than who God really created us to be. You know, we, we, uh, we, it's very easy to define human beings as being consumers or, or, or being lazy or addicts or, uh, you know, boring or passive, you know, passive couch potatoes, or, or uh, you know, cogs in a machine, and all these things. And here's the thing, you know, while at times we may certainly behave these ways, um, the fact is, at the end of the day, none of those things truly define who it is that God has made us to be. None of them. 
No, no, see, listen, at, at the core of who we are as human beings is the very thing that sets us apart from every other part of creation, every other species, and that is this, 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 this almost godlike... First John chapter 3, verse 10. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. <clears throat> yeah, notice, children of the devil. Yeah, here you're talking about the image of God if from Genesis 1, which is corrupted because of our sinful rebellion, and now every human being is born a child of the devil, and God is the one who has to transform them from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. See Colossians chapters 1 and 2 for details on this. And here you just complain, oh, yeah, well, when you look in the mirror, you know, how many of you... You know, don't see the image of God kind of stuff. This is weird. Imagination and creativity. It's who we are as human beings. You know, I mean, we have been created to be creative. You know, and, and, and at the end of the day, you know, we really are never more human than when we are creating. That, that's why when you are, you know, when you're just kind of stuck in this place of just consuming and taking and never giving and never creating. Again, my problem is not that I'm a consumer. My problem is that I'm a sinner. You feel, you don't really feel that alive. You know, it feels more like you're just sort of surviving or, or sleepwalking. But when, you, when you're actually creating and when you are active and there is something, when you're, when you're moving from being a human, just a human doing to actually being a human being, right? It, it, you come alive in that. Right? You, you rehumanize yourself, and as you rehumanize yourself, the creativity, the more creative you are, the more like God you're being, the more human you're being, and you begin to rehumanize yourself, and, and then all of a sudden you begin to take part in rehumanizing those around you. It's really a beautiful thing. Rehumanize. All right, here's the second word, all right? Second word is the word artistry. Artistry. Let's say it together. Artistry. Now, I know it's, it's one thing to... What verse are you getting the word artistry from again? Maybe admit that, that, you know, well, perhaps I can dredge up a little creativity now and then. But, but to actually, you know, embrace this idea that we are all artists, I mean, that is certainly, I mean, it's kind of it's certainly taking this whole thing to, to, a, to a very different level. Yeah, but where in the Bible does it say that we're all supposed to be artists? I can't think of a passage that says that. Do I go to hell if I don't want to embrace my inner artist? And so one of the things we've had to do is sort of uh, broaden our understanding of what it means to be an artist, right? And so we've done that. One of the ways we did that was we came up with this definition. It goes like this. An artist is a person whose life or work shows sensitivity, imagination, and creativity. All right, a person whose life or whose work or whose fill in that blank, whatever it is you do, a person, not a genius not someone who has some sort of, you know, gone to some sort of art school or someone who's been recognized as an artist by, by uh, you know, art people or whatever. You know, I mean, I mean this, is, this is people, human beings, a person whose life or work shows sensitivity, shows imagination, shows creativity. And so here's what that means. Okay, while an artist may certainly be a painter who stands in front of an actual literal canvas... Or it may be a, uh, I don't know, uh, an architect 
who's sort of sort of uh, redefining or changing the rules of construction. You know, uh, an artist might be a playwright, someone who writes a play that moves us to tears or to joy. Well, it, it, this also means that an artist might be a parent. What on earth does this have to do with biblical Christianity? He's not preaching any biblical texts here. We got a verse out of context. A parent who, you know what? A parent who finds creative ways to relate to and to, and to draw out the uniqueness of their children. You think everybody's doing that? Or an artist might be a single mom. In fact, most moms, most single moms are artists. They're amazing. Because in, in many ways, like they are forced, aren't they? They're forced to be creative and how they're going to get everything done, how they're going to make it. blows my mind. You single moms are really amazing. Right? Maybe an artist is an entrepreneur who knows when it's time to break the rules because the solutions that everyone's trying to come up with aren't working. And so they know when it's time to break the rules. How about a school teacher? I don't know how many of you, probably we have so many school teachers in our church. Um, and, and listen, you're almost done. <laughs> just, a, just a few more days. Just a few more days, right? But, but, but I mean, how about there's a school teacher who, re- listen, who refuses to see those children as just their job. And, and who is committed to taking ownership and to, to creatively find ways to speak into these children's lives and to draw something out of them that forever impacts them and forever leads them and, and guides them into a place of greatness. Or how about the student, man? Listen, I, I think students are artists in so many different ways. But, but, I mean, how about the student who decides that instead of complaining and instead of getting sucked into negativity and criticism with all their friends who are all about that, they decide, the new artist, the teenager who's a new artist, the student decides, you know what? Forget it. I'm going to find creative uh, uh, ways and I'm going I'm to bring solutions and ideas to actually help make things better. I would have thought parents would have given me a little more amen on that one. (laughs) Listen, it's easy to critique, man. It's easy to point fingers. It's easy to judge. It's easy to criticize. What's not easy is creating. What's not easy is bringing solutions to the table. What's not easy is becoming known for the things you're for. Anybody can be known for the things they're against. And the church has done that for a long time. Yeah, that's great. That that's a wonderful slogan I hear from a lot of seeker-driven leaders. Um, are you for the proclamation of repentance and the forgiveness of sins? Are you for sound biblical doctrine and biblical preaching? I'm for those things, and I'm noting the fact that apparently you're not for them based upon the fact that you're not doing that. But it's a whole different thing, man, to be, begin embracing and celebrating the things that you're for. And so what this means is like new artists, these new artists are people just like you and me. They're parents, they're grandparents, they're retired, they're, they're divorced, they're separated, they're hurting, they're, they're students, they're business people. The only difference between them and everybody else is that these new artists understand that artistry is first and foremost is a way of life. It's an attitude. It's a way that you live. It has, it has way less to do with a certain talent you have or a certain ability and has a lot more to do with how you live your life and how you do the things you do. Now, let's go to the next one. The third word that describes who we are as new artists. I need a drum roll or something. Oh, that was a, that was a very quiet pitter-pat. 
It's okay, though. I know what you meant. Okay. Ready? The word is sensitivity. Sensitivity. Would you say it with me? Sensitivity. I'm really tempted. All of these words are just liberal gobbledygook. I'm going to open one of these doors up because it's supposed to rain all afternoon, and there's sunshine out right now, so I feel like we should just let it in. But then I'm afraid all the ladies will complain because they're cold. No? Should we open them? Okay, let's crack one. Let's just crack one. Because if we crack both, then we'll get a thing happening here. I don't care, either one. Yeah, yeah, let's open that one. All right, cool. So, so sensitivity. Get ready. I feel like there should be like this heavenly sound effect when he opens the door. How is it out there? Okay, thank you. Oh, that's nice. Okay. All right, sensitivity. Say it again. I don't know how many of you have seen the movie Hotel Rwanda, but there is a, it's quite a movie, man. It's very, it just grips you. Yeah, and it's not found in the Bible. We've got one verse from you, Scott, one. Again, an atheist could have preached this. But there's this one scene in particular in the movie that, that always comes to mind whenever I think about sensitivity. And it's, um, it's a scene where the main character, so the main character was played by uh, uh, Don, uh, Don Cheadle. And he's playing this character uh, in the film. The, the, the real character's name is Paul Resusabagina. And, and Paul Resusabagina, he's like this, this man who is, well, he's, he, he basically is attempting to rescue his, his uh, fellow you know, citizens from the, the ravages of this, um, this genocide that's happening. And so there's, anyway, there's this one scene where, where, you know, Paul is just desperate and he's, 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 he's in need of great hope. Notice we get more explanation of the movie Hotel Rwanda than we do of anything found in the Bible so far. Uh, and he needs help and he's not quite sure what to do. And he ends up in this conversation with this reporter and he looks at this reporter and, and he says like with this, this little bit of twinge of hope, he says to the reporter, he says, once people see the footage of this, surely they'll intervene. And the reporter kind of looks at him and, 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 and says to him in sort of this deflated tone, he says, well, you know what? He, he says, when people see this, I, I think what will happen is they will say, oh my God, how horrible. And, and then they'll go back to eating their dinners. And, and so, see, th- this got me thinking about how, as new artists, like, there is this thing called sensitivity. I mean, true... As new artists, not as Christians, as new artists. Sensitivity, that, that if we will allow it to, it will not only enable us to see what's happening around us. It will not only enable us to become aware of what's happening, but, it, but it's what will also keep us from quickly turning away and turning our heads and just going on and, and eating our dinners. It'll motivate us. Instead of skipping by those things that make us uncomfortable, we're willing to look at those things in the eye. And we're willing to point out to those things and say what they are and to face it and to be aware, even if it makes us extremely uncomfortable. And so as new artists, we we live with a heightened sensitivity to the world around us. We don't avoid it. All right, we embrace it. And as we do that, what happens is we become aware of opportunities uh, to, to be able to bring the love and the beauty of, of God to our workplaces, in our schools, in our neighborhoods, in places around the world. We become aware of these opportunities. 
And then it's that same sensitivity that allows us to become aware when you hear someone's story that needs to be told. And maybe you have a platform and you can help. Yeah, I know someone's story who should be told. Jesus's. But you're not preaching Jesus, are you? Help them tell that story. Or you become aware of someone whose, whose voice was taken away from them through abuse or through whatever it might be they've gone through. And you see that and you say, you know what, I'm going to give voice to this person, this cause. And it's sensitivity that allows you to, to, bring broken, uh, to bring beauty to some of the most broken places around you in your life. Sensitivity, it wakes you up, man. It's like, it's, it's like caffeine. It, it gets you going. It get, causes you to become alert to what's happening around you. Sensitivity. The next word is imagination. 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 That, that's an important word. Um, again, which verse are you finding this in? Because imagination, well, this is what I think of when I think of that. Imagination. Yeah. Um, can you tell me what passage again you're preaching from here, Scott? So here's what imagination is about, because, because the new artists are imaginative people. Well, what imagination does is imagination allows us to see, uh, allows us to, to be able to, to go beyond just seeing what is, and it's what enables us to start getting a picture of what could be. Right? It, it enables us to, be, to begin getting a picture and to be able to go beyond in our hearts and our minds of how things currently look. Listen, do you realize Jesus was, was such an imaginative person? I, I mean, gosh. Really, Jesus was all about imagination. Can't wait to see you back that up. You know, I mean, think about the way that Jesus communicated. I mean, look, not only did Jesus use his imagination, but he was constantly like, like uh, you know, pulling on, other pe- on people's imaginations. He was pulling on people actually engaging and using their imaginations. Again, show me that from a biblical text in context without twisting it. When you think about the way that Jesus communicated, I mean, he told stories. Yeah, he did. And he spoke in parables so that seeing they may not see, hearing they may not hear. That's what he said. He spoke in metaphor. He Parable. He, he used parables. He spoke in ways. Listen, let me tell you something. Jesus spoke in ways that if, if as a pastor, if I taught some of the ways that Jesus taught, I'd be considered a heretic. Um, why don't you try it? I think you can risk it. Go ahead and preach Jesus' messages in context. We'll risk the heresy charge for you, okay? They don't teach you that in seminary. Nah, three points. Three points and practical take home. Go on now. Jesus shredded that whole thing up. Right? I mean, he, he, man, he flipped people's way of thinking completely upside down. That's why when you try to look and understand the life of Jesus through these very black and white linear lenses, it will never make, won't be able to make sense of Jesus, nor will you fully be able to follow him. I don't think you know how to make sense of Jesus at all. It's clear you're absolutely confused and muddle-headed regarding Jesus. And, you know, what Jesus did so well is he would constantly, I mean, imagination, the word, uh, it's, it comes from a word image, right? Uh, imago. And what Jesus did was he constantly would take the image that people had of themselves and he would replace it with an image of who he saw that they could be. Oh, wow. Yeah. Again, in context, show me that, please. 
You don't call, call, call out to the, to the, I mean, the disciples, right? Oh, hey, follow me, and I'll make you a fisher of men. Oh, great imagination there. He was working on their imago. Oh, wow. Oh, that, that, that's kind of cool. I like that, right? See, God, Jesus was all about that. And see, that's exactly what we do as new artists. You have no clue what that passage really means, and you're just grasping at straws. Scott, you sound like somebody who doesn't even believe we, we, it's what allows us to look at our city and to get a picture of what is God's dream for the city. God's dream for the city. What are you talking about? The job of the church is to make disciples of all nations, baptizing, teaching, all the things that Christ has commanded. You're supposed to be preaching the word. You're not doing that. Right? I mean, it's imagination that allows us to look around at our families, at our businesses, at our jobs, at our relationships, at our churches, or whatever it might be, and, and to see those differently, and to see them, and, and to begin to get a picture of how God sees them. How does God see my family? How does God see my church? How does God see my husband, my wife? How does God see me? Start getting a greater vision. The next word is the word creativity. Creativity. Say it with me. Which verse are you preaching from again? Creativity. Now, here's what creativity does. So a new artist is creative, and what creativity does is it allows us to go beyond just seeing it here or in here. And it's what enables us to begin the work of actually bringing that idea or that dream or that vision into reality. See, as new artists, if we just stop at being sensitive or we just stop at being imaginative, nothing will ever happen. Again, what passage says this? Activity is what actually allows it to happen. Now, granted, that is the hardest part. I mean, do you, do you, I don't know about you, I mean, I can think of things, but to actually create it, make it happen, that's a whole other deal, right? I can't wait till they, like those, those new 3D printers they're coming out with, like, if that just makes everything you need. Oh, I thought it, I'll just type it in. Although, how does it read my mind? I don't think they figured that out yet. But anyway, but, but I mean, that, listen, creativity, creating is one of the hardest parts. See, a lot of people think that, cre- that, that, that artists, when it comes to creativity, that they just like, they, they breathe out art. Like, just, it's there. Sorry if I spit on you. Um, it's baptism happening right here. She's like, I'm used to it. That's why I wear an umbrella. Anyway, um, no, but, but people think an artist like just somehow magically just creates, it just appears. But you know what every artist will tell you? Every artist will tell you that that is not at all how it happens, that the creativity is the result of lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of work. A ton of work. And it's a process. Creative process, man. And I'll tell you what, it is a very challenging process most of the time. Here's a photo I took in New York a couple weeks ago. It's a painting by Matisse. It's called The Moroccans. I love love this artist. But Matisse said it so well. It's this famous quote of his, very simple. Creativity takes courage. Say, Say that with me. Creativity. There we go. It's a little behind. Why would I want to say that? What passage is this found in again, Scott? That computer needs some caffeine or maybe the person running it. I don't know. I'm just kidding. All right. Creativity takes courage. Let's say it together. Creativity takes courage. Man, it takes a ton of courage to be creative. You know why? Because creativity requires you to be extremely vulnerable sometimes. I mean, creativity requires you to show up day after day after day after day. And and all those times you quit, it requires you to go back to it. 
again and, and you try it again. Creativity takes courage because it requires that you dive into the unknown. It, it requires that you embrace uncertainty. I mean, creativity requires that you take risks and that you're willing at times to break the rules. Creativity requires that you're willing to push the boundaries. Creativity requires generosity. And you know, sometimes, if you, sometimes it takes great courage to be generous. Creativity requires that you embrace diversity. Creativity requires that you are slow to judge, slow to judge yourself, slow to judge your work, slow to judge the people around you. So see, creativity takes courage. It's not easy to be creative. The creative process is not easy. And yet here's the thing, and this is just like our journey of following Jesus. Okay, whoever told you that following Jesus is like going and buying an ice cream cone and it's nice and easy and simple. Let me tell you something. They, I don't know, maybe they just don't know or they haven't been doing it long. Which Jesus are you following? Maybe you can preach a few texts from the gospel so I can figure it out. Long enough, because I'm going to tell you, like following Jesus is a very difficult thing at times. I'll tell you, you know what's easy? Following yourself. Huh? I mean, I don't know about you. I don't ever wake up and struggle with like wanting to do things Scott's way. <laughs> Not at all, man. It's, it's, it's natural tendency, right? I mean, but you don't talk about what's difficult is like following in the way of Jesus. And, and yet, and so that journey is, is at times very challenging. It takes great courage. And yet it's in that journey, it's in that process that something great happens. See, I, listen, I mean, when I was growing up in the church, it was like, hey, let's, let's just get, get out of here and get to heaven. And, and there was not a whole lot of focus on the journey. It's like, let, let's get past this uh, as quick as possible so we can get, it, get into heaven and play our, our harps and float on the clouds of glory. Well, first of all, that sounds horrible to me. That that where is that found in the Bible? Because you know, I don't ever recall ever being in a church that preached that message because it's not found in the Bible. That actually sounds more like what hell would be like. Okay, I'll be honest. See, listen, the, the journey, the, the process is where we are formed. It is where we are transformed. It's in the process and the journey that we fall flat on our face and we get back up and we learn from it. It's in the process, it's in the journey that we become better artists. It's in the process and the journey that we become better human beings. We just aren't always so good at being. Again, where in the Bible does it say I need to become a better artist? Present to the journey. And so as new artists, there might be times that we're tired and we want to quit and we want to give up because we've been trying and we've been trying and we've been trying. And for whatever reason, that beauty is just not coming. And maybe some of you, you're in that place right now where you're so dang tired. Well, you you know what? As new artists, here's what we remember. We remember that it is not ourselves who has called us to whatever that canvas is, but it's God who's called us. And so we're not going to, if we quit, we're called us to what canvas? What are you talking about? And what is the function of God in these, in this sermon? Exactly. We're going to go back to it and we're going to stick with it until God tells us to stop. We're going to be faithful and we're going to hold on to, to promises like, well, the one last weekend or a couple weeks we looked at Galatians six, nine, listen to me. Listen, if you're an artist, those of you listening online, if you're an artist and you're struggling with the creative process and you feel stuck, listen to this, this will bring you hope. Let us not grow weary of doing good. As an artist. 
for in due season, we will reap if we do not give up. Reap creativity if we don't give up. What are you talking about? That's not in the context of being an artist. If you don't quit, you'll win. Don't give up. Don't give up. Here's the next word. Pain. Pain. And no, I'm not talking about your husband. Now, I'm not going to say much about pain, but I will say that oftentimes, and you know that some of the best art comes out of a place of pain. You know, um, and not only can pain lead, listen, not only can pain lead to the creation of something great that shows up on a canvas or on a stage or in a book or whatever it might be, but listen to me, pain, if we allow it, if we allow it, because we can sure work against this, but pain, if we allow it to, can also lead to the creation of something great in your life and in mine. And so here's the thing as new artists, like we, we aren't going to be ashamed of our pain. We don't have to be. We're not going to be ashamed of our pain. And, and, and yet, on the other hand, like we're not going to ignore our pain either. Oh, many of us are ignoring our pain, but you don't have to do that. Listen, I'm, I'm a master at ignoring pain. I'm so good at ignoring and avoiding pain. I know how to keep moving. I know how to go to the next new thing. I'm very good at it. So my journey has been about learning how to face my pain with courage and how to be honest about my pain. And so as new artists, that's what we have to, we got to pay attention to our pain. We've got to be willing to deal with our pain. And instead of transmitting our pain out to other people around us who we love, instead of transmitting that pain out onto our children, instead of transmitting that pain out onto, the, onto our husbands, our wives, our friends, or as leaders in our workplace, and that, and that pain is coming out sideways and causing all kinds of problems. Listen, instead of doing that, we're going to allow God. We're going to, going to allow God to transform that pain. And we're going to allow God to help that pain actually become a very important part of our story and, and actually a, a very important part of the art that we're going to bring to these canvases around our lives. Are you with me? Here's the next. No, I'm not. This isn't biblical. The next word. Flow. Flow. If you're listening online, F-L-O-W. In case you were wondering. You guys remember Flo on Mel's Diner? Mel, kiss my grits. Remember she'd say that? My mom, my mom would get so mad at me when I would walk around the house saying that. Mom, kiss my grits. It's not a good thing to say to your mom. <laughs> I don't even like grits. Why would I even own them? Anyway. So flow is the word, okay? So as new artists, we learn to flow and to cooperate with the movement of the Spirit in our lives. All right, we, we learn to flow with the Spirit. It's called the art, the art of improv. You want to learn how to flow well? Pay attention to, to people who do, do great at improv, right? Now, last weekend, we talked about the rules of improv. Maybe you missed them. I'll put them up for about 10 seconds, so you might want to take a picture, all right? Here's the, here's the rules of improv. Be present. Support others. Say yes and take risks, play, listen, get out of your noggin. Is this 
the new list of the gifts or the you know attributes of the fruit of the Holy Spirit. This is ridiculous. Commitment, energy, and a willingness to fail a lot. And so as new artists, we intentionally push against that tendency to want to be in control of everything. You know, as new artists, we're going to push against that tendency to want to always hold tightly to the script. We're, we're going to resist that, that, that tendency to want to always play it safe and to always want to picture everything out perfectly before we take steps. And instead, what we're going to do is we're going to cooperate with the Spirit. We're going to choose to live in that tension. That's so hard for some of us analytical types, right? But, but, but listen, we, we learn to live in that tension and to live with a willingness to flow and to lean into the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And we're going to have this posture that we are ready to listen. We are ready to say yes in response to those nudges and to those whispers of the Spirit in our lives. You know, I take it back. It's not that he's functionally an atheist. He's kind of a pantheistic mystic. That's really what this is. This is pantheism, not atheism. Slight difference, but, you know, and still in some ways very similar. Here's the last word. The word is one that's been popping up throughout the series quite a bit. It's the word canvas. Canvas. Say it with me. Canvas. So the canvas is, the, um, is, is what provides the, the backdrop or the space for the artist to create, right? Um, for painters, it's a, it's a literal, maybe a literal canvas, or if they're street artists, it's the side of a building somewhere or something. Um, a, dan- a dancer, you know, they're, they're going to dance on the floor or sometimes on the street. A writer, paper, whatever it is, songwriter is going to go in the studio or they're going to be on, on stage performing or whatever it is. But here, let me tell you what every artist knows. Every artist knows that ultimately their canvases go way beyond any of those things. At the end of the day, what, what truly is the canvas of an artist is the heart and soul of humanity. Let, let me tell you something. I don't, I don't know any artist. I really don't. I don't know one artist who would say like, well, you know what? My goal is to create something great and to put hours of pain and work and frustration into this piece of art so that people can look at it and go, well, that's nice and walk away. No, they don't do that. Listen, an artist does what an artist does because they, their hope is that what they've created will awaken people, that, will, that it will maybe inspire people, that it will, that it will prov- maybe provoke people. It will get people's attention, that it will ignite them, and it will, it will do something that will impact their hearts in a way that they'll never be the same, that it will bring change to their, to their lives. So here's just a good question, I think, for us to, to close with, to wrap this series up with. I don't mean close the service, so just sit down. No, listen, what is your canvas? What is your canvas? I think we have to ask it because, you know what, I would feel like a complete failure, and I mean this. If we went through this whole series about embracing your canvas, but we never took time to really pay attention to what our canvases are, forget it. Embrace your canvas. You'll look far and wide at all of Scripture, and you won't find anything even remotely approaching it. This is nonsense. What is your canvas? Some of you say, I have no idea what my canvas is. No, no freaking clue, Scott. I haven't figured it out. I don't know. And, and listen, let me just say, I understand that. I told- is God mad at me if I haven't figured out what my canvas is? 
totally understand that. But let me also say to you, will God forgive me if I don't figure out what my canvas is? You do have one. You have one. Everyone has a canvas. Now, you may not call it a canvas, but you have a canvas. And in fact, not only do you have a canvas, but you probably have multiple canvases in your life. They're right in front of you. Sometimes they're big. Sometimes, you know, those canvases are, have a lot to do with that dream or that, that cause or that pain or that passion. What dream? What cause? What passion? My canvas then is, well, painting heretics for what they are with the right colors so that people avoid them like the plague. That just won't leave you alone. It, it just nudges you all the time. and You can't quit thinking about it. For some of you, it's that thing that makes you angry. Keeps you up at night. It's that, it's that, it's that, it sometimes makes you feel like you want to punch a hole in the wall, man. Yeah, like when Christian pastors don't preach Christ or the word at all. Some of you, your canvas is that thing that you are most afraid of. So you can spend your entire life trying to rebuke fear and trying to get fear away from you. Or, or you, you can wake up. And you can start paying attention to your fear. Because let me tell you what I'm starting to learn. I'm starting to learn that, that oftentimes your fear, whatever you fear the most, is oftentimes it's, it's actually pointing you in the direction that you most need to go. And so how about start sabotaging your fear? Huh? How about instead, instead, of, instead of remaining paralyzed by fear, you pay attention to your fear and you say, what am I most afraid of? Well, then there's something there that I need to go for. Some of you, that, there's this great fear in your life. What is that fear? What are you most afraid of? See, and, and, and that's why this, maybe there's been times where you have prayed and you've begged God to send your canvas to someone else. And you pray and you beg God to send it away from you. And yet there it comes back. There it is hovering over you again. I get it, man. So it's like a stalker canvas. Got it. Do I get it? Let me tell you, sometimes I think we, we think that our canvas is going to come out of the sky like a UFO. You know, it's just going to land. Listen, the UFO has already landed. Okay? The canvases are here. All right? In fact, it's probably closer than you even realize. Can I tell you what I've discovered? And I'm going to be just totally honest with you right now. Those canvases whew, aren't nearly... As notice how anthropocentric this sermon is, that means man-centered, and how Christocentric it is not. This, I mean, this isn't Christ-centered to save your life. This is horrible. Sexy or shiny or as impressive as we might sometimes imagine or hope they will be. I'm telling you, it's been a hard one for me to learn. I'll tell you what, for several years, for a long time, actually, I was convinced that, that my canvas was a place called New York City. I mean, I really believe that. I, listen, my wife and I, our plan was to go to New York City. And we, we were going to go there, and we were going to start a new kind of church in Manhattan. And it was going to be a kind of church that would reach out to people who weren't, who weren't being reached by, by any other churches. And man, listen, we were serious about it. Listen, I, my wife and I, we, we became so convinced that this is what we were supposed to do. That I'll never forget one night we were laying in bed. And, and 
it was a Sunday night, and we're both laying in bed. And, you know, sometimes you have that feeling like there's change in the air. And so I remember we're laying there, and I said to Amanda, I said, my God, like, I feel like there's change in the air. I feel like something's about to shift for us. And, and she said, yeah, I know. I feel it, too. I've been, we, we, I've been feeling it for a while now. And as we, as we started talking about it, what we came to the conclusion of was we, we said, okay, well, what this must mean is that it's time to go to New York. It's time to go do this thing. It's time to go plant this church, which we knew what that meant. That meant we, we, have, to, uh, we have to sell our house. We just moved into our house like a month before that. We, we, we knew that, that we, uh, you know, we just had a, our second child uh, three weeks, maybe four weeks prior to that. Uh, we, we knew that it, w- it would mean transitioning out of the church that we were working at at the time, which was my dad's church that he was pastoring. We knew that it meant we'd have to move our family. We'd have to figure out how in the crap do you raise children in New York, New York City, right? We, we knew that, that we'd have to put together some kind of plan. We'd have to raise money. We'd have to, we'd have to go and talk to people and get people behind this vision. But, but I'll tell you what, we felt ready to do it. And, and as, we're, as we're laying in bed that night, we, 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 we laid there and, I, and, and we made the decision, it's time to do it. And I remember I said to her, to my wife, I said, Amanda, this week, I'm going to go and I'm going to talk to my dad. And I'm going to have this conversation. And, and I'm going to share with him what we're feeling. And he already knew that because we've been talking about it, but we didn't know the timing. Who is Scott preaching about? Scott. That's who he's preaching about, not Christ. But, but, but I was going to, so I said, I'm, this week I'm going to sit down with him. I'm going to share with him. We're going to start working out some kind of transition plan. And little did I know that, that the change that we felt, that there was definitely change in the air, but it, it was completely different change than what any of us would have ever imagined. Because it was, it was, it was within two days of laying in bed and making the decision, we're going to go to New York City. It was within two days of that that very suddenly, and without any kind of warning, without any kind of, uh, you know, uh, uh, heads up, my dad suffered from a massive heart attack and died instantly, 60 years of age. Everything changed, man. Everything changed. And, and, and all of a sudden, there was this grief and there was this pain that I never felt before. There was this depression. There, there was this trying to figure out how in, in, in the world like to lead the church now through this grief. Because now they've lost their pastor. I've lost my dad. They've lost their pastor. And, and so now how do I lead the church through this? I had no idea. Church was exploding at that time. It was, it was like going like this. And I had no idea what I was doing. I'd worked at big churches, but I never worked at churches that were actually like doing that. I was confused, man. And, and New York City was on hold, man. And so there was this, there was this time, like this three, four, five months that were just hell. They were awful. And, and, and I remember walking through so much pain and so much grief. And, and, and towards the end of those months, uh, just within, actually within a couple of months, I, I remember when, when the board came to me, the board of the church, that came to me and said, we, we think you're the one. I said, no, God, you, you, you guys are just all confused and crazy. You're senile, God's sake. Do you know me? After a ton of praying and trying to wheel and deal with God, you know, make deals, fighting, contemplating, we finally came to this place where we knew deep in our hearts that this was what we were supposed to do. 
And so we said yes. And it was probably the hardest yes that we've ever said. Based on this sermon, you should have said no. You clearly are not qualified to be a Christian pastor. You're not preaching the word, and you don't know how to rightly handle it. And I'll tell you what, not only did that mean we had to let go of our dream of New York City, but it also meant accepting the fact that our canvas was going to look a heck of a lot different than we would have ever imagined. Hmm, Let's see, you know, New York, Aurora. Hmm. At least we can afford a home in Aurora. <laughs> I'm going to tell you something. It took me a long time to get to a place where I could accept that my canvas was going to look a lot different than, than I expected it to look. Listen, sometimes our canvases turn out to look a lot different than we would have ever imagined. Are you, are you willing to accept that? I don't even know what you're talking about. Are you willing to embrace that? I mean, I mean what, what if you were to just to take a look at your life right now and look at the intersections? Like, who, who is it that your life is intersecting with on a regular basis? Who, who are the people? Where, where are the places? What are the things that keep coming back to your mind and your heart over and over? And you try to push them away and you say, ah, that's, that's not God. Or, oh, that's, that's Satan. <laughs> we got to get that out of here, right? Or, or whatever you might think. But, but what would happen if instead of focusing so much on being so focused on these doors that aren't even open, you would start to pay more attention to the ones that, that are open? Even if, even if they're just open a little bit. Like what would happen if you started paying attention and started taking steps? Listen to me, maybe you are where you're at right now because that's the place that is in the greatest need of your art. Do you know what I had to accept? I had to accept the fact that, you know what? New York City didn't need my art. Aurora does. It took me a long time to accept that. I didn't want to be in Aurora. I grew up in Aurora. And I don't want to be an artist. So am I sinning? I didn't like Aurora. I didn't. I didn't like Aurora. I didn't want anything to do with it, man. I was ashamed of Aurora. I was. I, I, people would ask me where I'm from. I'd say Chicago. <laughs> oh, oh and then it'd be someone from Chicago. Oh, what neighborhood? Uh, you know, the, the Aurora neighborhood. How many verses have we got in this sermon? One? One and a half? It's pretty much it, right? This is not a biblical sermon. <laughs> Listen, I had all kinds of baggage. Oh, man. I would avoid it. I would drive around the perimeter of Aurora, go the long way to go to the mall. I don't drive, don't drive through the hood. Some of you live in the hood. Don't take, be offended at that. Listen, it finally got so bad. And this is while I'm pastoring this church. It finally got so bad, and I finally got so desperate. Because what would happen is I would have these friends of mine who would go start churches, and they'd be like, oh, man, I'm going to start a church in my favorite freaking city of the universe. I'm going to Austin. Ooh, I love my city. And then someone else, I'm going, I'm going to New York. I love my city. I'm going to da-da-da. I love my city. And I'm like, well, I freaking hate my city, and I don't want to hear you say that anymore. <laughs> and I'm actually about to hate you as well, because sucks that you're so you know excited about what you're doing 
But listen, let me tell you something. I became miserable. And I remember getting so desperate that I finally one day, I prayed probably the most honest prayer I've ever prayed in my life. I said, God, either let, either, either let me leave the orchard and go someplace to go some city that I can actually love. Because the, the church deserves a pastor who loves the city they're in so that he can help lead them. In. Yeah, let me correct that. A church deserves a pastor who loves the word of God so much that he preaches it in context and preaches Christ Sunday at a, uh, Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, regardless of what text he's preaching from, whether Old Testament or New. He's worried about the city he loves. It's clear he doesn't love the word of God. Into loving their city. And I don't love the city, and so I can't do it. I tried, I tried, and I tried. I couldn't do it. So I said, you either got to let me go somewhere that I can love, or you, you have to rip my heart open. And and you've got to give me new lenses by which I can look out and see the city. Something has to happen. Let me go. Change me. Wreck me. And I'm going to tell you something, man. God began tearing my heart. God God began changing me. And for the first time in like 30 years, man, I began to see beauty in our city that I had never seen before. And and man, listen, it's so what? It changed me so much. People who who are close to me, they, they, they like Scott, if if like, if, if I was an atheist, I would be a believer now because I see how much you're changing. Is that an amen or? or... <laughs> oh, you, you're not an atheist, are you? Uh... He will be if you keep preaching like this. It changed me so much because you know what would happen is it used to be when I would go travel somewhere, I'd go to a city somewhere, and I, I would come back really angry at our city, and I would think our city sucks now. No, no, seriously, you ever done that? You go somewhere and you come back and you're like, well, our city sure sucks. And you'd be all disgruntled. So what was happening was I, I, was, I, I was like mentally cheating on my city. No, no, I'm not kidding you. I was cheating. I was, I was committing adultery with all these other cities, like fantasizing. Well, you're committing adultery with the church, the bride of Christ and his word. That I could go. I'm not kidding. That I could go. This is how God showed it to me, man. Like I, I would go to these other cities and, and I, I would fantasize about going there and completely neglecting the city God had put me in. But then something began to shift. And you know what started happening? And so now, now this is what happens. And I can't even control it. Sometimes I try to control it, but I can't. I'll go to a city. Two weeks ago, I was in New York City, walking on the High Line in New York City, which is an amazing park. And I'm walking down the High Line. And all of a sudden, like, I'm feeling my heart expanding for this place here. If only your heart would expand for Christ and his word. You know how different that is? Like, I find I go, go to some places, and all of a sudden, like, my vision for what Aurora could be gets bigger and bigger. So, here are my canvases, okay? My family. One of my canvases, my family. My wife. My, my, uh, my children. My three, my three kids. My, uh, my nephew. My niece, um, my mom, 
Here's another one, my job. It's my canvas, the orchard. And you stuck with me, I guess, for a while anyway. I don't Poor people. They need a pastor. They don't have one. Is that my mom that started that clap? Or, um, <laughs> but my job, so, so the orchard, so the staff that I lead, the, the community. <laughs> Brown noser. <laughs> um, the congregation. Now it's just getting uncomfortable. Um, no, my city. Listen, let me tell you. You want to know what my, one of my canvases are? I don't want to... Again, note, he's preaching about himself, not about Jesus. Himself. You say Aurora, I'll say it's the... And apparently Christian sanctification now becomes you being a new artist, whatever that means. Got to focus on your canvas. Don't know what that is? Yeah, I don't know either. Just ask Christ and the Holy Spirit will give you a nudge. It's the young men that... that I have a privilege of mentoring every week, Adam Mock too. We meet with these young boys and we say things to these young boys that no other man is saying to them in their lives. And we're telling them that we believe in them and we're talking to them about how, how you become a man because it doesn't just happen. And a lot of them are the byproducts of boys who never became men. And so part of my canvas are these, are these kids Part of my canvas are the artists in Aurora who, who I try to do what I can to encourage them and to, to empower them and to uh, draw out of them what they have to bring. You know what another one is? is pastors. I don't know if it's just because my dad was a pastor and I saw what he went through in his life, but I have such a love for pastors. And, and so the doors open, so, so many doors have opened to be able to connect with and to pour into and to mentor pastors and to share with them our story. I mean, literally, listen, you guys don't know this probably, but our story, the orchard story, and I'm not exaggerating here, hundreds of thousands of... Yeah, the last thing the body of Christ needs is you um, uh, mentoring pastors. The more pastors that are like you, the less pastors they'll be preaching the word. ...of people around this world know about our story and what God has done here. And how God took a church... No, you need to tell them the story of Jesus. ...church that was on the verge of dying and breathed his life into it. And today, like, some really great things are happening. So, what's your canvas? Um, Yeah, no clue. When you came in, you received one. Would you take it out real quick? Oh, no. Really? Um, if you didn't get one, by the way, raise your hand because we'll make sure. I want everybody to have one of these in their hands. So, you know, listen, you might not know what your canvas is, but what I was trying to do by showing you these is to show you it's not, it's, it's oftentimes what's right in front of you. And so what, what I want to do is I want you just to think about for a second, like what are the, what are the things you've been given in your life that, that God has entrusted you with? giving you responsibility for it, a steward to develop, to change, whatever it is. And for some of you, it's going to be maybe, it, may, it might be a country or a certain place you feel drawn to. And you're scared to death to write it. That's why you should write it. If your hand is shaking, it probably means you're supposed to write it. For some of you, you're going to write down your children. 
So some of you, you're going to write down home or, or you're going to write down uh, the name of the, the cause or the organization or the business that you lead or whatever it might be. But what, I, what we're going to ask you to do is to go in just a minute around this room. There are these tables here that have markers. And we just want you to take a minute or whatever to write down one of the canvases in your life. Just one. All right? Write it down. And, and, and listen, um, don't overthink it, okay? Like some, some of you are so f- stinking analytical, and so you're, you're trying to, you're overthinking it. Just stop it for a second, okay? Listen, just, just allow your right brain to do a little work here, okay? Like, like, so, 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 so go just write down the first thing that comes to your mind. What is your canvas, all right? You might, be, you might want to be very specific. You might not want to be. It doesn't matter. You're going to take these home. Um, and, and then... Uh, and then what I want you to do, so just a minute, I'm going to have you stand and go to the tables, write it down. But then I want you to go back to your seat because we're going to take these and we're going to pray over them before you leave today. All right. And don't leave early. Okay. Because the doors are locked anyway. We locked them and that, that one's going to be shut anyway. So don't get all excited. Like you had no, some kind of plan B here. Um, but listen, would you stand with me? And we're going we're gonna to give you a couple minutes. Go ahead and make your way to the stations. Uh, and there's different colors. Like if you want to get fancy, that's fine. Uh, if you don't, you don't have to. It doesn't matter. But just go ahead and write it in big letters, okay? Big letters, what your canvas is. All right, everybody got theirs? Would you stand to go ahead and take your canvas? Cue sappy music. By the way, the purpose of the sappy music is to create the false impression that God the Holy Spirit is now descending to do business with people, apparently to help them discover the canvas that they have. You guys actually were pretty fast. You must not have done a lot of doodling on them. Um, So here's what we have to recognize now. Um, These all, these canvases, whatever it is in your hand, it belongs to God. You don't own it. And that kind of brings some freedom. And, and, yet, and yet, there's a reason God's brought it in front of you. And so there's something you have to bring to it. And so I want you to, just right now, take your canvas like this, put your hand on it. I want you to close your eyes if you want. You don't have to, but just I want you to put your hand on that canvas. Close your eyes and put your hand on the canvas? What? I want to pray and join me just in praying over these right now. So you're going to pray over the canvases. I think sometimes we underestimate our ability to hear from you. So for some of us, we've written something down that we <laughs> we, we don't know. Yeah, normally I cut off a pastor at this point, but this is too weird. got to keep going. No, like we feel like maybe we just made it up or whatever. But, but God, it's okay. Even if we did, it's okay. But God, chances are there's something really meaningful in what we've written down. And so I pray really, God, for just a couple of things. I pray that you would give us great sensitivity towards these canvases. Open our- Sensitivity toward the canvases. Not your word, not your spirit, but the canvases, got it. In our hearts, may we pay attention to these canvases. I pray that you would, you would, you would give us courage to use our imaginations and to dream and see beyond (laughs) give us courage to use our imaginations and dream i have never heard a service close with this kind of prayer what they are and begin to get a vision of what they could be no repentance no forgiveness of sins no crucified and risen savior 
no biblical passages. What do we get? One point two verses. I wasn't a full two verses. That's for sure. God, what does what does your vision of this canvas look like? Yeah, probably blank, just like it is right there. And, and then I pray, God, as we trust you, that that spirit and that heart of creativity would rise up within us. Spirit and heart of creativity. Oh, this is getting worse by the second. Yes. And that you would show us how to creatively bring our art, which is essentially bringing your goodness and your beauty to these canvases. God, I thank you for stories that will be told. I thank you, God, for families. Except for biblical stories. Families that will be raised. I thank you for marriages that will be restored. I thank you for books that will be written. I thank you for films that will be directed and produced. Mm-hmm, right. God, I thank you for art that will be created in so many different and magnificent ways. Not people brought to repentant faith and trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. But, you know, we thank you for movies that will be filmed and books that will be written and nonsense like that. Is that will all point to you and all point to your, your awesome love and your grace that you so freely give to us. What does grace mean in that sentence considering what we just heard? To this world. We dedicate these canvases to you now. Oh, yes. The solemn de- dedication of the canvas eye. Yeah, this is quite the religious um, tradition, uh, religious practice, the religious... Well, I don't know what this is, but it's not Christianity. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. And so you're going to invoke the triune God for this nonsense. Got it. And we pray these things. And everyone said, Amen. So there you go. You heard the entire thing. And in a rare move here at Fighting for the Faith, I included the prayer at the end. What a convoluted mess. Artists. God wants us to be artists. He wants us to rehumanize us, to for us to be creative and innovative and all the other ifs, whatever they are, you know, but there was no repentance, no forgiveness of sins. And God's word wasn't preached or proclaimed. Christ and his cross wasn't preached or proclaimed. This was just utter nonsense. What did you think? Love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian or follow me on Twitter. My name there at pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. <laughs>